This episode contains strong themes that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people we have decided to disregard this decade. We're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, but years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity, and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda, and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. This week, we're bringing you a special episode from our in-person anti-Semitism event that took place on the 25th of May this year. The host of this conversation is Dave Rich, the head of policy at the Community Security Trust, a charity that protects British Jews from anti-Semitism and related threats. He is joined by two former members of far-right white supremacist groups, Nigel Bromwich and Arno Michaelis, who now use their platforms to educate and help others transition out of extremist movements. Thank you all for coming today. It really is its heartening, it's encouraging to, to see so many people come out for this event. It gives me hope. For those of you I haven't met, Matt Palmer, I'm the, the, the new, newish uh, charge d'affaires here at the, the US Embassy. Um, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this has been a difficult day, a, a difficult time for Americans, for parents, for those who aspire to freedom from violence. There's no words really to convey the sense of, of tragic loss following the events in, in Texas, which themselves followed hard on the heels of the events in Buffalo. Anti-Semitism is arguably the world's oldest form of hate. And over the last decade, we've seen the global Jewish community warn us of a rising tide with increased levels of violence, of frequency, and of spread. It is incumbent upon each of us to be an ally in the fight against anti-Jewish oppression. It also wouldn't be possible to gather for a conversation on combating hate and white supremacy without acknowledging that today is the second anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, a moment that reverberated around the world and laid bare the brutal realities of systemic racism. So too are we still reeling from the shooting in Buffalo, New York only a few weeks ago, which targeted a black neighborhood under the racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theory of a great replacement. A perverse ideology in which black Americans are among the replacers and Jews are among the masterminds of this so-called plot. This pernicious and enduring trope is not new. And today we will discuss where conspiracy theories like this come from why they endure, and how they are being harnessed to indoctrinate and radicalize a new generation of acolytes. 
These ideas are lethal to the communities they target, and they also pose an acute threat to the health of our democratic society. Indeed, if people are taught to believe the lie that power is in the hands of a powerful minority, what is their incentive to fight for a better world? We can, however, take steps to give people the tools they need to recognize these falsehoods and conspiracies. That's part of what Shout Out UK is trying to achieve, what other individuals and organizations in attendance here today are, are working towards together separately and, and in partnership. Disinformation and anti-Semitism threaten our communities and our democracies, but together we can, we must, and we will work to identify and interrupt them. Before we start, I was just wondering if we could give a round of applause to the US Embassy for hosting us in person this evening. I think it's great to have. <laughs> I'm very ecstatic of being able to do this in person rather than over Zoom or Google Meets or Teams or many other video conferencing that we've all had to deal with. Uh, so my name is Lucy Spicer. I'm head of operations at Shoutout UK. And for those who don't know us, we are a creative social enterprise that's mission is to ensure that everyone is politically and media literate. And what that means is that we want to equip people with the skills and tools to combat misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, and online radicalization and extremism, to name a few bits that we do. We couldn't be prouder to be hosting such knowledgeable guests with such inspiring stories. In the 1980s and early 1990s, Arno Michaelis, hope I pronounced that right, <laughs> um, was a leader of the worldwide racist skinhead organisation and the lead sinner of a metal band that is still popular with racists today. But single parenthood and the love he had for his daughter changed his path. Today, Arno is now a speaker, author of My Life After Hate and works as an educator with Serve to Unite, an organisation engaging students with a global network of peacemaking groups. Nigel Bromarge spent decades as part of a far-right group such as the National Front and Combat 18, and thankfully managing to escape, he dedicated his career to helping people out of the kind of groups he escaped from. He founded Exit UK for this purpose, as well as Small Steps Consultants, an organisation raising awareness of the dangers of far-right extremism and providing people with the skills to reduce it. Moderating this discussion is Dave Rich. Dave is the head of policy at the Community Security Trust, a charity that protects British Jews from anti-Semitism and related threats. In his role, he oversees research on anti-Semitism and threats to the Jewish community, as well as advocacy and support for victims of anti-Semitic hate crime. Arno, Nigel and Dave, thank you so much for being here today. We're lucky to have each of you under one roof. And we're excited to hear your stories and your ideas for combating the roots of hate that lead to anti-Semitism. Thank you, everybody. Um, and thank you, everybody, for coming this evening. Uh, we're going to have, I hope, a really wide-ranging and interesting discussion. Um, and there will be times for questions at the end. And we'll really, I hope, to get into what is the ideology, what are the, the beliefs that really motivate the kind of hate we're talking about. And it does feel like a very timely moment to be having this discussion. But I want to start at the beginning. Arno, with you first of all, when were you first aware of white nationalism and what is it that pulled you into that movement? I was exposed to white nationalism in 1987 when I was 16 years old. 
and it was via a uh, white power skinhead band from the UK. Um, what really was attractive to me about it was that it repulsed people. I, I had developed a habit of lashing out at society and just like trying to make people angry, trying to shock people. Um, before I became a skinhead, I was a punk rocker. I was about to make it clear that like being a punk rocker is not a gateway drug to becoming a white power skinhead. But, um, and punk's a big tent. There's a lot of you know activist punks, but to me, punk was just about breaking things and shocking people, and nothing shocks people like a swastika. And that was initially what attracted me to white nationalism. And Nigel, I mean, when you got into this movement, would you say the same thing applies, that it's kind of the extremist behavior, first of all, and then the politics gives a justification to it? Uh, I think it depends on the individual. So like, like I know I was a, a punk first and a skinhead, and you sort of, you know, you generally take that sort of route, and it, you know, it's about sort of getting that anger, and where does that anger lead you? But for myself, it was about sort of, for me, it's about the hatred of extremism. Uh, and and my, the reason why I got involved in the far right was because of like my hatred for the IRA and then planting bombs. So I actually thought I was doing a positive thing because I was trying to stop extremism. It was only with myself then when I got in that world that I realised that I actually walked you know, through the gates of hell, literally. And then, then it would become about anti-Semitism, you know, Jews control the world, everything is the Jews' fault. And, you know, and when you're a young 15-year-old, you know, I mean, you literally believe whatever's told you because there's a book by a professor and, you know, as a, as a working class lad who, you know, comes from a strong sort of working class council background, if it's got a professor on it, it's got to be right. So you don't tend to argue those facts and figures. And I think that's one of the weaknesses of, of what we do today. So it sounds like as a 15 year old, you were quite politically engaged, you're aware of what's going on in the world. And was there like a questioning mind there that then these extremist ideas gave these answers to? I mean, for myself, I was brought up in a really political household. So mum and dad were socialist, Labour Party members, left-wingers, loved people like Arthur Scargill. So we were brought up in a really strong household, which was like, you know, it was socialism or nothing. So I was, I was always understanding of politics and, and hated the far right with a vengeance. But because for them, they opened a very different door to me initially, I didn't equate it with the far right. And I think that was my sort of mistake there. But when you start taking anger and building on it, it, it it's just such a quick journey, isn't it? The journey's really, really quick, I think. Uh, and then, you know, one enemy becomes five very, very quickly. And once you're exposed to those ideas, I mean, Arno, you said you listened to Screwdriver. Yeah. In terms of the mechanics of how you then got involved in an actual movement, did you go out and seek people? Were there, was there local far-right activity where you were living at the time? How did it work? It, it was fairly organic. <clears throat> and I, a, a lot of the, the things I've learned along my journey are universal truths that all human spirituality deals with. But the one that comes to mind now, especially listening to Nigel, is this the truth that as human beings, we find what we seek. So if we want to find reasons to be angered and find reasons to be outraged, we're going to find those left and right. If we want to find reasons to see ourselves and others and believe that we have more in common than different, um, that could be a lot more difficult, but uh, we can find those also. And so as a 16-year-old, I, I was, first of all, looking for that shock value 
And then uh, that nature of finding what I sought kind of created a self-fulfilling prophecy. So my friends and I were radiating hate and violence into the world around us. And go figure, the world just starts giving it back to us. So like my buddy that I started the band with and started a group with uh, shot a kid who came into a drive-by on our house because of our actions and the attention that we brought on ourselves. And rather than take responsibility and be like, oh, well, maybe we need to change some things, according to our ideology, we just fell into that pattern of blame. Everything, all these bad things happening to us couldn't be our fault. It's the Jews' fault. It's the blacks' fault. It's everybody's fault but ours. And of course, by casting blame constantly, we're casting away our ability to really change things in our life, which makes things get worse. So now you have this cycle going, and, and if you're, this is all happening while you're reading white nationalist ideology, it's like, oh, now, now it all makes sense. And so that, that's really kind of how things spiraled out of control for me. And as far as the, the membership goes, um, I've said in the past, like our band was a magnet for every pissed off white kid in Wisconsin. Uh, we would play at punk shows, and if you weren't like there for our band, you'd get beat up. So you, you had a choice to either like be with the, the aggressors or get beat up. And, and kids were, especially kids who had been victims of bullying, would feel a sense of power being part of this pack. Even though they might get bullied worse than they ever were before within the pack, um, it was better to be bullied as, as part of this group than being bullied alone. So, I mean, look, all teenagers try and shock and rebel. Right. Most don't do it like this, True. right? So were there things going on in your family life, at school, in your wider life that made you particularly vulnerable to, to these kind of answers? Because a lot of teenagers aren't even asking these kinds of questions. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I, rebellion and lashing out is this kind of part of teenage life for everybody to one degree or another. In my case, I think it was definitely a mixture of nature and nurture. Um, a lot of it's my, my personality type. Uh, a lot of it was, I, people who don't live in the States like don't get this, but like for me, when I was a kid, when my dad was drunk, we were gonna shoot guns and light off fireworks. Like we had a pistol range in our basement and I was shooting pistols as, as, as soon as I could hold one. So I liked explosions, and I liked guns, and I liked loud things, and I, I, I needed like that level of chaos to happen in order to get the, the stimulation I was after. And you combine that with the suffering I went through as a child uh, because of my father's drinking, which wasn't necessarily like him being abusive to me um, or my brother, or really abusive directly to my mom, but my ma we were living beyond our means. We lived in a very well-to-do suburb in a house we couldn't afford because my dad did more drinking than working. And what that meant was my mom was completely at her limit at any given moment, sometimes working two jobs to keep the lights on and the bills paid, and her relationship with my dad sucked. So they were constantly screaming at each other, constantly fighting, financial pressures. And I grew up like just very painfully aware of my mom's suffering. And that's what made me suffer. And rather than be a good kid and be like, hey mom, I love you, how can I help? I just started to distance myself from her and from my dad who despite his disease did love me very much. And that made my suffering worse. So that's how I started lashing out other kids and then getting this habit of 
of extreme behavior that meant my teenage rebellion had to be magnitudes uh, beyond your, your day-to-day teen rebellion. Now, you've both already talked about anti-Semitism as being a really important part of the, the ideology and the propaganda that kind of explain the world. And I'm just curious, Nigel, when you're growing up in Birmingham, did you know any Jewish people when you were growing up? Absolutely not. You know, I lived, you know, Birmingham is a multiracial city. You know, we knew people from all other corners of the world, but nobody from the Jewish community. So this sort of this sort of vision and this ogre of what they created, because there was nothing to challenge that, you literally thought, well, that that must be what's happening, and that's what the Jewish community is like. Whereas today, obviously, you know, the, the the action we need to do is get people who have extremist beliefs to head into the Jewish community, you know, the Sikh community, Muslim community, and learn about those commonalities. You know, that's what we need to do. But at that time, we just didn't have that community, you know, cohesion or reason, that in- engagement. You know, e- even Birmingham as a multiracial city, there were still pockets of people and communities who never interacted, and that would go on for, like, decades. So when you first read about this Jewish conspiracy and all the rest of it, if you can cast your mind back, had you even were you aware of Jewish people? Had you even thought about Jewish people when you read the read about Jews in these books? Was it landing on a completely blank page in terms of your consciousness of who Jews are and and what they're about? Yeah, for me at the time it was very much like because at the beginning I I didn't embrace anti-Semitism as sort of being the main angle. It was anti-terrorism. Then I embraced the racism. Then I became sort of anti-government, and then when I became anti-government, was the anti-Semitism was brought in, and then it was about you know being anti-Jewish, anti-state, you know anti-police, and then that's the sort of journey I took. But knowing anything about the Jewish community, because there was literally no information or no co- connection, it, it just I just swallowed it in. You know, as, as a young lad, fifteen to eighteen, you just go, okay, I'll swallow it in because it was part of the package. And I think, obviously, what Arno said about that feeling of belonging, you know, just like Arno, my dad was a was a drunk for one, a better word, committed domestic violence to mum, did all that sort of stuff. So that sort of offer of that help and support, that alternative family, you want to get away from that chaos and that heartache, you literally go to people who, who do not advocate that, they do not, you know, they're pro-family, they're positive. So that sort of behaviour is not acceptable. Whereas in reality, I mean, I know, know exactly what goes on behind closed doors and, and it's, just, it's just not a public face. Mm. So anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness was, for me, you know, sort of five years into the journey. But when I embraced it, you know, for me, and I hate to say, you know, the Jews become the number one enemy. Um, and that was the one who I literally focused probably 10 years of my hate towards because I believed all the rubbish about controlling the world, newspapers, banks everything like that. And it's only then through my experiences of meeting people from the Jewish community, you know, researching, finding out what they were saying. It was once I had those seeds of doubt, there's that then is when I started to go, okay, let's pick, you know, let's pick at this. And the more I picked at it, I just thought, you know, how stupid can you be? But then you don't want to leave, do you? Because you've committed your life to it, or your friends are there. And, it, and it's how do you walk away from a movement like that? So that's a really interesting question of how, because the way you've explained it, you've gone through layers to get into the movement mm. and reached kind of the, the, the most pure, sort of strongest level of, of hate, if you like, and conspiracy theory. And then you've almost 
unpicked it in layers as well. I mean, Arno, is that what happened with you? Was there one particular moment where you started to have doubts or was it a gradual process? It was a gradual process. I, the, the one simple answer as to how I got out was exhaustion. <clears throat> and the exhaustion came on all sorts of levels. For one, I knew what I was doing was wrong from the get-go. There were times like as I was hitting someone where I have this inner voice saying, what the hell are you doing? What's wrong with you? Like, you're a horrible person. Why do you act like this? And I didn't have the courage to even acknowledge that voice, much less answer it. So I had to constantly suppress this inner knowledge of my wrongness, which took a ton of effort and a ton of energy. Um, I, I always, anti-Semitism is a topic that I'm, I'm passionate about uh, addressing because um, in, in a lot of ways, it was Jewish people who led me out of white nationalism. Part of uh, white nationalism, like every, any other violent extremism, there, there are so many parallels between white nationalism and violent Islamism, this being one, in that pop culture at all, like across the board, is absolutely forbidden. It's all seen as part of this Jewish conspiracy to corrupt the minds of white men so that they're unable to fight back against their oppression. And uh, the, the rhetoric of white nationalists in that regard is almost identical to the rhetoric of ISIS. Whereas ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda would, would say um, infidels, but they're still talking about the, this Jewish conspiracy behind us. Um, we would talk about the Jewish media and, and Hollywood is Jewish, it's all Jewish. Um, one of my, the big factor in my turnaround was Seinfeld, the TV series. Uh, when it came out in, in the 90s, my skinhead girl girlfriend became enamored of it through work. She worked at a bar, and she prevailed on me to watch it one night, which was very brave of her because she knew it could have got really ugly just suggesting it. And so I saw one episode and was just hooked, and I had to tape it for her. You guys are pretty young, but back in the day, we had these, <laughs> we had these things called VCRs. They were about the size of a suitcase, and they always blinked 12. And if you were very clever, you could get it to tape a TV show. And so I had to tape Seinfeld for her when she got home from work. And um, I loved it, just like everybody else. And, and I couldn't very well write Seinfeld on the spine of the tape, because if my white power buddies came over and saw that on the bookshelf, it, it, I could get my ass kicked because of it. So we put it on a tape that said Amber's second birthday party because we knew no one had ever asked to watch that. That's where we hit our Seinfeld <laughs> episodes. Now, Seinfeld being a observational humor type of show, I'd watch it on Thursday at 8 p.m. on NBC, and then on Monday I'm having a bowl of soup, and I think of the soup Nazi, and I chuckle like everybody else who loves the show. But for me, it brought about another inner conversation where I would ask, we, we used to call our white utopia the the whiter and brighter world, which very snappy, isn't it? Um, and, and I used to ask myself, hey, does Jerry Seinfeld get to live in your whiter and brighter world? And, and if he does, do you think he's going to be very funny if you're slaughtering all the other Jews? And the, the only answer to that is that my ideology was nonsense. It, it, the, the, the genius and the humor of that show, along with all sorts of Hollywood movies I loved, um, music, uh, love the Beastie Boys, uh, really drove home that the, the world is a better place because of Jewish people, because of Afro-American people, because of Asians, because of Latinos, and that if I were to set all this 
ideology behind, I could enjoy these things without feeling like a hypocrite. That was a huge contributor to the exhaustion that ultimately brought me to a point in 1994 where I just I couldn't do it anymore. I find it, I actually find it quite moving that you and I were watching the same TV shows and listening to the same music <laughs> at exactly the same time. I want to, I want to move on to now, because of course the way that all these ideas are disseminated now is not videotapes and CDs of screwdriver, it's all online, mm. right? And we've just seen, I mean, the absolutely awful uh, shooting in Buffalo by someone who was entirely radicalized online and during the pandemic. And we talked about conspiracy theories and, and conspiracy theories have become very prevalent about COVID and about vaccines and so on. And I'm just interested to get your thoughts, Nigel, first of all, about how that has changed the landscape. How have you noticed that having a, making a real difference to the appeal of these ideas, the types of people getting exposed to them as well, and the, your ability to kind of pull people out or change people's minds? Yeah, I mean, the three great questions. I mean, the, the big thing is the internet. The internet has literally changed revolution, hasn't it? So in my day, I, it took me like um, probably seven years to really commit to national socialism, Hitler, all the rest of the rubbish. But today, you know, people can get radicalised so quick. And to show you how quick this journey is, I spoke to one young lad and he watched one film, which was six and a half hours long, and he went from somebody being inquisitive to then classing himself as a dedicated national socialist. And then to me, to get him out, it took me four months to convince him that six and a half hours was literally like just a propaganda film. Um, and, and the internet as well allows extremism to be promoted 24 seven. You know what I mean? We've got to be there 24 seven combating hate because when we all go to bed, you know what I mean? The far right message is still there. And you know, sometimes after a full day work, I'll be there or somebody else will be there at three o'clock in the morning with somebody. Because we know if we leave talking to that kid, he's then gonna jump onto a far right forum. And then we've got work the next day and the next day and the next day. And that's not, that's not sustainable. We've literally got to make sure, you know, if the far right's been around for, for over a hundred years in the UK and obviously in America longer with the clan, then you know, we've got to look long-term at this. And it's only if we decide a partnership long-term investments, we're going to be able to do it. Because of the internet, memes, videos, the process is just so much more accessible. And the one big thing for me now, there's literally no rules. I think in mine and Arnie's day, we had rules, you know, you didn't hit women, you know, we didn't attack places, religious places of worship, you know, a bit strange for neo-Nazi not saying we don't attack mosques and we don't attack synagogues, but there were certain things we would never do. Whereas today, I think the big difference is of everybody we've spoken to, it is literally like a race Lamageddon. They literally want to basically like bring the system to its knees, and then somehow miraculously this phoenix will arise. You know what I mean? And you know we've got to put everything we can, buffers, anything we possibly can to stop that happening. Because if we don't do this and we don't do it now, then I think you know all of us here will suffer, and our, our children and their children will as well. Um, and I just think not only is the process much bigger and quicker, you know what I mean, the, the, the clientele are changing. So the majority of people we engage with, so Exit's been going since 2017, spoke to over 600 people, and the majority of young people between 17 and 25 are middle class, well-educated, at college and at university. 
and they have a lot more to lose. You know, this is not a white working class movement anymore. You literally can get sucked into this like world of hate, you know what I mean, because of the net, and it can affect any family. I think we're going to get, take questions from the audience in a minute, but Arno, I just want to ask you one, one last question. Um, you both talked about how you fell into this, this world as teenagers, and we're increasingly seeing that the age of, certainly in this country, uh, young people getting involved in violent neo-Nazism, going through the courts on terrorism charges and so on, are getting younger and younger. We're seeing teenagers going through. And I just wonder what, what are the key messages? What are the, 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 the things that can be done to actually reach these people? What, what, what are the, either the messages or, or, or the, the actions that can actually help reach people of that age group? I, I work with a group in the States called Parents for Peace. You can find out more at uh, parentsforpeace.org with the number four. <clears throat> Similar to Exit UK, um, we address violent extremism across the spectrum. So uh, we've worked with a ton of white nationalists, but also violent Islamists, uh, political extremists from either side of the spectrum, even environmental extremists, uh, incels. And um, I think a really important message for young people, and, and kind of an objective of ours, is to instill or, or recover a sense of curiosity, to, to create a gray zone, to create space where doubt can exist first, and ideally to cultivate that doubt in the actual wonder. To, like, wow, I wonder what it's like in this other place. I wonder what, it, what this other culture is like. Um, again, going back to the parallels between white nationalism and violent Islamism, there was a piece of ISIS propaganda called Eliminate the Gray Zone that was disseminated to their members. And the entire point of, of this directive was they didn't want anybody wondering, like, oh, I, I wonder what our Muslim neighbors are like. No, they want to be terrified of the Muslim neighbors. It was their job to make sure that all non-Muslims were terrified of Muslims and that all Muslims suspected all non-Muslims. White nationalism works in the exact same way. They, they want everyone who's not white to be terrified of, of white people and they want all the white people to be terrified of everyone else. They need that binary thinking. They can't have any kind of hazy space. So to cultivate that curiosity when I'm working in an intervention setting, and, and even if I'm just having a conversation, it, you know, the it's cliche, the, you know, crusty Uncle Joe at Thanksgiving uh, in the States or whatever, Boxing Day here, like, oh, what are we going to do with Uncle Joe? He's on about <laughs> his stuff again. Um, it, it's, it's very helpful to guide these discussions from the macro where the person is going to want to exist. Um, the, the shooter in Buffalo was talking about all sorts of things he believed was happening in the world that, that I can guarantee you he didn't have any firsthand experience with. Mm -hmm. So is to challenge that person, whether it's Uncle Joe, you know, on whatever level, whether it's Uncle Joe or we're talking about like an, a mass murderer, challenge them to talk about the world in terms of their firsthand experience rather than things that are fed to them second, third, fourth hand in the backwaters of the internet. And when, when you get them talking about their experiences, ask them how that feels. If I'm talking to Joe pissed off white kid, 
the first thing I want to find out is what's going wrong in his life. Now, when, I, when I'm talking to Joe Pissed Off White Kid now, the first thing I want to find out is what's going wrong in his life. The big difference is, is back then I would exploit it, blame it on Jews, blame it on everybody else, give him an easy way out. Nowadays, instead of exploiting it, I want to try to heal it. Get him talking about that. How does that make him feel? Getting, getting him to understand uh, what, what's driving his attraction to these apparent uh, uh, ideologies. And I, that, that talking about their firsthand experience is really important, and it really only functions well if there's someone to listen to them also. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm going to take questions from the floor now. So if anyone <coughs> wants to ask a question, put your hand up. And there's, there are microphones, microphones around. Um, thank you for like the talk. It was really enlightening. Um, I know you both at one point spoke about like the kind of more niche, like backstream, like media, like the far right uh, forums and stuff. How they're like a bit less accessible. But I wanted to ask more about how you think maybe more mainstream media has contributed to like the whole environment of like white nationalism. For example, like in America, it's been said by many people that like people like Tucker Carlson has mentioned some kind of form of the great replacement theory like many times when he's been on like mainstream news and about like how like big news channels portray um, like far-right uh, perpetrators of like crime and violence how they portray them perhaps not stressing how much like white nationalism has played a part and perhaps about how this like contributes to like the roots of hate and stuff. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I think in, in a broad sense, um, there, there's an issue that I think all media outlets are affected by, and that's just the nature of clickbait. <clears throat> the, the way that content is monetized nowadays is how many people click on it. And that means you need to have a sensational headline that gets people to be like, oh, I got to see this. Click, 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 click. Um, it, there's a old saying in, in media, if it bleeds, it leads. And so the, the nature of media outlets, whether they lean left or right, uh, to participate in the, the process of clickbait is, is a huge problem because it feeds each other. Um, there certainly are mainstream far-right media outlets, just as there are mainstream far-left media outlets. And, and both the political polls are interdependent. They can't exist without each other. If I don't have a far left to point to, I got no wind in the sails of my far right organization, and vice versa. Um, one of my closest friends is a guy in Denmark named uh, Sorn Lerg, and he's a former Antifa. Sorn and I would have killed each other 30 years ago, and now we do things like organize community dinners and build skate parks for kids and whatnot. And listening to, to Sorn and his stories, you can see that interdependence from the left and the right. So um, the reason why Tucker Carlson has so many viewers is because Rachel Maddow has so many viewers also. Uh, I'm a fan of Rachel Maddow's. I, I think she's much more honest than Tucker, but I mean, that, that's my subjective political opinions talking. Um, the, if you look at the, the fundraising, speaking of the states at least, 
the fundraising of Donald Trump depends on the, the, the actions of AOC and vice versa. When Donald Trump makes some outlandish statement, AOC pumps it out on her fundraising list going, oh my God, can you see what this guy just said? You gotta send me money. And Donald Trump does the exact opposite thing. Can you imagine what this woman just said? She wants to take over America. She's Pol Pot, send me money. So you, you need to understand how the right and the left feed each other. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge mistake to think that um, if the ones we're partial to are not capable of making those mistakes. Uh, I, I honestly believe that all human beings share an equal capacity to harm or to heal. And once we can start to convince ourselves otherwise, we're setting the stage for violence. Whether it's saying, well, those people are more likely to be violent than we are, or we're the good guys. We would never be violent like that. That's, that's, uh, you're, you're creating a sense of separatism that, is, that can justify violence on the scale of like a nasty comment on Facebook to a mass shooting and everything in between. Next question. Uh, you, sir, in the mask. Thank you for giving the talk. Yes, go ahead. I wanted to quickly ask what your views were on the relationship between free speech and hate speech, mm. uh, especially in America where free speech is basically supreme. But how do we draw the line? Should we draw a line? And what your opinions were on that? Do you want to? Nigel, do you want to? I think, yeah, that's a, I mean, a really I, good I question. Also, yeah, um, I mean, we do need free speech because if you stifle de uh, debate, extremists win. So we've got to have difficult conversations, no matter how uncomfortable they are. But what we've got to understand is, like, if you can do that, where is a way where you're looking for answers and you're respectful of others then that should be a guideline for free speech. So you're not targeting people, you're literally looking at problems, as in like where, what's happening in the world, and then obviously the answers lie with us all working together. He doesn't lie about the white community doing one thing, the black community, the Jewish community doing other things. Mm -hmm. It's about finding those answers. But I think the key thing is respect. If you respect others, then that way then that should sort of hopefully contain that where it doesn't develop into hate speech. But if we don't allow that sort of that that sort of platform to do that, you're literally just opening door to extremism because all they're gonna do is go, well, you're not letting me have free speech. You know what I mean? I'm gonna go here. One of the only reasons I became a racist and a Nazi is because everybody called me a racist and a Nazi. So in the end I just thought, you know what, if that's what you think of me, I'm gonna head to their camp because they're the only ones who listen to me. So we've got to have that space and that debate. And however uncomfortable it is, it's just we've got to do it and then look for the answers at the end of it. So hopefully that's helped, but Arno will give you his take as well. I, I emphasize everything Nigel just said. Um, I, I cherish the First Amendment in the United States. I think it's, it's one of the most special things about the USA. But the way I interpret the First Amendment is that because the government is not going to monitor, not going to limit my speech, it's my job to be responsible about what I say. Uh, I think the, the fact that the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights addressed free speech um, revealed the priority that it was to the Founding Fathers at the time. So if, if free speech is something that someone cherishes, that doesn't mean you can just go say whatever the hell you want, you can just go insulting people and, and hurting people. Assault is, is, if I berate you verbally, that's legally assault. 
um, it means you need to be responsible with it. Uh, I feel the way the same way about the Second Amendment, which a lot of discussion needs to be had around also. But um, it, I think free speech is definitely a pressure valve. I've done a lot of work in Scandinavia, and I know that in Sweden they have very strict laws about hate speech. You can be uh, imprisoned for using racial slur. It's illegal to have um, white nationalist organizations. In Denmark, they have much more of a, an American-style approach to free speech. Uh, it's not illegal. These organizations aren't illegal. And lo and behold, Sweden has a far greater problem with those type of organizations than Denmark does. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, and, and the bottom line is, is, I think the reason why banning hate speech is attractive to some people is because hate speech has been causing massive suffering, especially to people with melanin in their skin for centuries. And it, when you're hurting, you want something to solve the problem instantly. You don't want to hear like, well, you know, it's complex, blah, 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 blah. But the bottom line is, is I don't think we can just legislate hate out of our society. Um, we, we can't, when you legislate things and make a law against it, logically you're saying if you break this law, you're going to be punished. So the idea is we can punish hate out of our society. We can punish racism out of our society. I, I don't think that that's possible to be successful. Um, so therefore, I think free speech is very important. And I think that everybody who values free speech has the responsibility to use their right to free speech First of all, to stick up for and defend anybody who's been a, a target of hate, and also to uh, put things out in the society that are helpful and healing, to practice kindness, to practice compassion, to practice forgiveness. Um, create a society that is less susceptible, less conducive to hate speech in the first place is a much more effective approach than just trying to ban it with the stroke of a pen. I think the, um, since I'm on the stage, I'm going to take the liberty of giving my view as well. I think, the, I think social media has fundamentally changed the balance between free speech and hate speech because the social media companies have basically taken it upon themselves to capture every single thought that any human being has on earth, make it permanent and turn it into a commodity to then be broadcast to the rest of humanity. And that completely changes the status of speech itself in ways that I don't think we're understanding or really catching up with yet, but we are already seeing the negative impacts of, and I think that's a big policy challenge for everybody. Uh, my name is Sabra Amidi. I'm one of Britain's youngest imams. So an imam is basically a Muslim version of a priest. Um, first of all, thank you for the stories you've shared um, and massive respect to the work you're doing because I know on a grassroots level, tackling extremism is a challenge. So respect to you guys. Uh, my question is simply this, is what responsibilities do parents, us as individuals in a society, and the media have to tackle extremism and cut the roots of hate? Great question. I think we all have got a responsibility. It doesn't matter whether you're a parent, a teacher, concerned citizen, you know, a, a baron of a newspaper. Everybody has a responsibility to tackle extremism. We've, if you hear something which makes somebody else feel uncomfortable, challenge it, but do it in a non-confrontational way. Find out the reason, why is somebody saying that? Have they been pushed to do it by somebody else? Or is it because they're angry? And if they're angry, then find out what that real reason is. Because 
They might just be like you have said, you know, you choose a victim because, you know, hurt people hurt people. Mm. And I think if we understand that, we'll get to the root. But I have to give you the bad news. It's not going to be quick and it's not going to be cheap, okay? And it literally means all of us, you know, um, just get up in the morning, get on with your daily lives. But if something happens from an extremist or racist point of view, call it out, but do it for the right reasons. And if, you, if you're, you know, lacking knowledge to do that, educate yourself, you know, go to like Shout Out UK, others, learn, watch podcasts. So you've got that sort of knowledge base where you can challenge these extremist ideals. And you might be the person that makes that person think and then turns their life around. So I'd just say do it, you know, but do it well. I absolutely, I, you nailed so many points there, Nige. I, I would also add, before I get a little esoteric again, which I'm a Buddhist, I'm sorry, I just do that stuff. But I, I think it's, it's important for us to all con constantly remind ourselves that we are all in this together. And that, that means that we're in it with the people that we despise. <laughs> we're in this with the people whose political views make our stomachs turn. Whoever we're, we, that makes our stomachs turn, they're not going away. They're not going up in smoke. They're not going to change the way they think and act like that on a spot. So we have to see them as human beings, and we have to remind ourselves that we are all in this together, whether we like it or not. We're literally existing all on the same spaceship right now. And <laughs> by the way, the spaceship's life support systems are failing, and we really need to get on that. <laughs> um, another you know, minor problem to get to. But um, understand that, that extremism affects everyone. One of the, the principles of Parents for Peace is, is to address extremism as a public health issue, um, the same way we ad address domestic violence, uh, the same way, if you look at the, the evolution of the HIV crisis, when it first came about, it was very politicized, it was very targeted against people who are particularly vulnerable to it. Today, fortunately, we say, this, hey, this is a public health thing that affects everyone, and, and there's general consensus on that. I really think we need to do the same thing with violent extremism. Instead of saying, it's, if, if we're left, uh, say, well, it's just white nationalism, if we're right to say, oh, it's just violent Islamists or whatever that means, um, understand that it can affect anybody. It can come from any direction. Uh, it affects all of us. So really seeing it in a holistic approach is really important in a, in a policy sense, as far as I'm concerned. And then in the more esoteric sense, I once had a young man, mid-20s or so, at a talk, ask me, he said, hey, I got a three-year-old son, how do I make sure he doesn't grow up to be like you were? He added the were, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, and and I, I just said off the top of my head, I'm like, be happy, be a happy dad like a genuinely happy human being. Um, again, I don't have letters after my name, but I do Google a lot. And I, with my Google PhDs, I like to study neuroscience and things like that. Um, neuroscientists and mental health professionals have recently like distilled human happiness. They, they have come to the conclusion that human happiness consists of gratitude, kindness, and forgiveness. And the more familiar we are with those three things, the happier we're going to be in life. Um, 
the great news is, is that all those things are free. You don't need a dime. To, of course, it's easier to open on about uh, kindness, gratitude, and forgiveness when you don't have to worry about money. But the, the fact is, those are things that are accessible to everyone. And when you genuinely practice those things, not only do you create your own happiness, you are going to cultivate happiness in all the people around you, especially the people in your family that you're very close to. And, and my parents are amazing people, and their, their love for me that they refused to give up on me throughout my time as a neo-Nazi, it, it was as big as a factor as anything else in my turnaround. But at the same time, it was my parents' misery <laughs> that made me miserable as a kid. I think if my parents were genuinely happy and they really dedicated themselves to those qualities, uh, it would have changed the course of my life. So that's a really important thing that I think all of us can do to combat extremism is to make gratitude, <laughs> kindness, and forgiveness part of our daily practices. And that not only affects people in our family, it affects our coworkers, it affects people we encounter in our day-to-day -day life. It, it literally has a, a butterfly effect that can move throughout the world. So it, it's, it's something that we shouldn't um, write off as just like kumbaya, whatever. It, it's actually a very powerful tactic to, to build peace in society. I've got a three-year-old, so happy, happy dad. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, Thanks, brother. Hi, um, thank you so much. Um, my name's Talia. I work for the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Um, I just recently got back from a trip from Poland with an organization called March of the Living, um, UK branch, and you essentially go to Poland and go to German Nazi death camps in Poland. And one thing I just wanted to ask is, how, what was the role of Holocaust denial if there was denial in your radicalization? And also, do you think Holocaust education is an effective tool for like Gracie like because I can imagine that you could look at the Holocaust as a Nazi and be like it's a great idea but then was that I know denial is a part of like far-right thinking as well so I just want to know about that thank you um I think for me the Holocaust denial became a really important part so you know we used to promote things like Holocaust news and it was foil cartoons and everything and it was literally to trying to to weaken sort of you know that sort of understanding that the Jews are there and that it's everything is their fault, but the minute you start looking at the reality, and this is where we challenge people today, we'll go, okay, what's the the reality of a concentration camp? Who's going to be the concentration camp guard? Who's going to split families up? Who's going to take clothes off people? And you know, horrific as it is, this is the way we strip down it because we literally, you know when we've, we've helped others in Poland to take people to camps, they've gone there and they've literally broken them down to the very bottom, showing them that actually what their ideology, and my previous, our previous ideologies did, the reality when you look at these children, you know, one point, uh, off the top of my 1.5 million uh, children got killed. How can you support an ideology that kills children? Because what you've got to do is you've got to look at the individual and forget the labels. Any ideology that promotes anything like that, any human being with any form of compassion should drop instantly. But you've got to understand these people are in a bubble of hate and only by education and compassion and understanding are we going to break that because no platforms stopping them doing things literally sends people down an abyss. And it's when they get to the bottom of that abyss where we don't know what they're doing is when we're in real trouble. 
So let's educate, let's open doors, let's invite people into communities. You know, one of the things we do, if somebody doesn't like a Jewish community, we'll sit them down and we'll eat Jewish food. Somebody doesn't like Muslims, we'll sit them down and we'll eat Muslim food. And we'll literally find out what the commonalities. So you're pro-family and you're pro-family, but the far right guy will say, actually, you're destroying your family because instead of having happy times, which is completely true, you're leafleting online, you're smashing, you know, up some, you know, uh, Jewish, you know, butcher's window. Where it was actually, you should be home spending time with your family. So if you're pro-family, get your book back to your family, you know what I mean? But then when you say, look at the Muslim community, the Jewish community, who's more pro-family? You know, white British or American families or families from other communities. And I think that's where we see that, that, that sort of drive for individuality is I think the Western civilization's weakness because a lot of the far right are actually jealous of that sort of community that many mm. other communities have. Mm. I've, you've nailed that tonight for sure. Um, thank you for doing that work in Poland. I know it's very difficult work. I've been to Auschwitz and what struck me uh, amongst the trip that like changed who I was from that day forward the first thing that struck me is from the airport in Krakow to the train that, that goes to Oswiesum, the entire way from the airport to, to Auschwitz, there's anti-Semitic graffiti today that people did like, you know, within the past year or so. Um, just to imagine that there's this place where every blade of grass Every leaf on every tree, every speck of dirt, every drop of water is infused with the remains of millions of people, and people can still deface the surrounding area with anti-Semitic graffiti. Like, shows you what we're up against. Um, I do believe that Holocaust education is absolutely essential. I think what's very important about it is, as Nigel pointed out, to make that individual connection. When I went to Auschwitz, I was very fortunate that I had the supervisor of the guides to take me on my own tour. And I, I couldn't imagine the work this man does because all the people who guide tours of Auschwitz for a living, this is their job, they can't go numb and they can't lose their minds. As they navigate people through some of the most inhuman atrocity that the human race has ever stooped to in our 200,000 years. Um, I have an immense amount of admiration for everybody who's, who's doing that work. Uh, so many things struck me on my visit, but one amongst them all was that there's a room full of eyeglasses just in, a, in, in this gigantic pile of all glasses that people needed to see. And I remembered when I was, uh, I was like eight years old when my parents saw that I needed glasses. We were, we were out on a boat and there was a sailboat that went by and I couldn't read what was on the sail and that's how my mom said, oh, he needs glasses. Every pair of eyeglasses in there had a story like that. And, and those stories have to be told. Um, they have to be understood and, and we, we have to understand what's behind the hate that created that room full of eyeglasses. 
So absolutely, and, and it's all the more important now that people who have firsthand witness of the Holocaust are aging off and dying. So it's up to us of this generation to keep those stories alive and keep alive the stories of genocides all over the world, in Rwanda, in Bosnia. Um, that again, this kind of hatred and this kind of brutality is not particular to Germans. Uh, it's, it's something that we're all capable of and we, we need to be uh, aware of that and really committed to, to keeping these stories alive to stop it from happening again. Um, I'm conscious we're well over time. Can we keep going? Okay, so let's keep, mate. quick questions, quick answers. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's so insightful. Um, I'm Blythe Crawford from ICSR, and I look largely at kind of alt-tech platforms where um, far-right extremism is quite rife. Um, and one of the things that I notice on these platforms is, and these forums in particular, is this extreme hostility towards outsiders, particularly people from kind of um, de-radicalization intervention programs and law enforcement. I'm wondering just how um, we can work with effective intervention in these spaces that are not only anonymous, but are extremely hostile and are very, very difficult to even get individuals to the table in the first place. It's, there's a ton of parallels between addiction and violent extremism. Parents for Peace actually really uh, focuses on that as well. And one of them is the concept of rock bottom. If you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, every single person in that room will have a rock bottom story of something horrible that happened because of their drinking, where they're like, I can't do this anymore, I gotta quit, and I need help. Unfortunately, like you said, Nigel, everybody wants like an easy answer, and I do too, but the, the unfortunate answer for people who are, who've descended to that level is that each one of those people is gonna have to have their kind of rock bottom moment. You, you can't, force de-radicalization on a group like that any more than you can force sobriety on an alcoholic. They, they need to have the at least a spark of that drive to begin the process, which is why it's important that people like Nigel and myself and a lot of our colleagues uh, are out here telling our stories. I, I honestly do not like the whole public figure thing. I wish I could do this work without doing the Arno show starring Arno this week's episode, Arno on Arno. But the, the bottom line is, is that when my story is out on a big platform, CNN or something, or Nigel's story is, the likelihood of one of those guys in those groups seeing it gets higher the bigger that platform is. And I'll guarantee you there's guys in, they're going to curse us. Traitors, you know, they're all kinds of freaking out. But I, that means we're striking a nerve. And there's going to be people in those groups who are going to be like, in whether they vocalize it or not, they're going to be like, hey, that guy made it out. That guy actually looks pretty happy. <laughs> that, that guy actually looks almost somewhat successful. Like maybe I could, it could plant that seed of doubt. So that, that, that's really the, the most important and first thing that comes to mind. Um, but it's, it's a huge challenge. I mean, I'd just add there, I'm going to be honest, we lie. We go on all over their platforms. We use every abusive, as in, you know, username you can think of, but it gets us on that channel, on that platform. And until we're banned, we literally just spread seeds of doubt. 
You know what I mean? When somebody says, oh, you know, oh, I've had an issue with Muslims and we'll go out and me and then we'll build a story, but then we'll put the seeds of doubt in. But hold on, you said this, you said this, and then we'll put three or four, you know, sort of um, educational links in and then when we get banned, we just cry in our email and go back again. <laughs> and then it's only when you get high knowledge, nice try, that you sort of go, all right, fair enough, I'll leave that one for a couple of months and comes back. But we, we've literally got to get into their spaces and we've just got to provide the doubts and then sort of just show them actually what you do think and you think is absolute gospel, it is just absolute rubbish. So it can be done, but we just need more people to do it. Thank you. That too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm Libby from Shout Out UK. Um, I know I grew up in a very white area, and I know from personal experience, like in primary school and high school, anti-Semitism. It was like from like personal experience, teachers didn't really take much notice of it, and it was like it was seen as like much less hatred than like other forms of hate, like of harassment. And I just thought whether you thought it was like from a place of like lack of education or ignorance, or if it was like something else. I'd say lack of education from, you know, there was no real, dis other than the Holocaust, that was the only thing sort of you were taught at school about sort of, you know, the Jewish community, you know, I mean, most people didn't even know where Israel was or anything like that. So we've got to raise that sort of education levels to understand, obviously, the, the horrific Holocaust and everything like that. But just general awareness, you know what I mean? Encourage people to go to Israel, see what life is like, talk to Jewish communities, and then all of a sudden you'll see all the rubbish that the far right say, are actually just absolute lies and it's just it's just that you've got to keep that continual flow you know what i mean don't just do one program and hope for the best in another six months it's got to be a continuous sort of you know educational story but we can do that ourselves in our own communities pass links watch a good video share it with friends use social media social media's there and you know a lot of bad things happen on social media but it's also a great tool because we've all got that sort of, you know, that weapon that we can use our phone to destroy the far right arguments. So everything that we find that is positive about a community that the far right hate, let's share it and destroy it because you don't literally know where that message is going to go. So you can use two minutes, share a great story and that positivity. Like Arno says, you know, love kills hate. We've just got to keep pushing that message, I think. Right. Should we jump to the next question and see if we can get through Thank a you. couple more? Thank you. Hi, hi there, hi there. My, 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 my name is Mark Anthony Bastiani. I'm from the CWU. Uh, you talk about uh, free, free freedom of speech. There's a difference between freedom of speech and hate speech. We've seen too many times with hate speech, 900,000 people in we render die because of hate speech. Hate, hate, bigs of hate speech. We've seen Muslims, Shia, Sunni attack each other because of of hate, hate speech. We've seen people in I, 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 Ireland kill each other because of their god that 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 they 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 believe in. Do, do you think it's time that schools from the early age starts to talk about it? Not once a month, because in the UK we have a, we have a Black History Month, so one month of the year we, we can talk about how great that, that we've done. But from when kids start to go to school, so from, from two, three, year, three, three years of age up to uni, university, that they're taught every day or once a week that working living together is not as bad as what you see on the social media sites thank thank you 
Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I think belonging and identity are crucial. And, you know, for us, we use localism as a great way to defeat sort of, um, you know, far ideology. Because you can be proud of your sort of local community, especially during COVID, we learned how important the local shops is, how important your neighbours are. And actually that, you know, we all go to the same schools, we all go to the same dentist, and that sort of common identity built it. But we've got to build on the common identity, look at everybody else's identity and respect it. I think respect is the key word. We, you know, we are different. You know, some people got blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, some of us got grey hair and like a bit of a big stomach. But that's just the way life is. It's not a reason to hate people. So we've just got to be aware of everything because that knowledge will take away fear, and it's fear that drives extremism. Oh no! If you if you'd had that kind of education from a young age, do you think it would have helped you? Yeah, I, I, I love the, the point you make, and, and I, I think what's important is emotional intelligence. That's what we need to spend a lot more time teaching young people. Um, I, I think we need to teach young people how to think, not what to think. We need to teach young people how to feel, not what to feel. And, and education for a very long time has been dates, names, facts, figures. Nowadays, you got Google, and I go, you know, the British Empire, and I have 32 billion hits. So it's not a matter of finding the information, it's a matter of how to think critically about the information. So critical thinking, emotional intelligence, how to think, how to feel, um, not what to think, not what to feel, Those, that's what comes to mind when you brought that up. And you're absolutely right. And hate speech is what drove the Rwandan genocide in the same way as the Bosnian genocide, in the same way as the Holocaust. I'm, I'm Laurie, I work with Shout UK. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the, um, the economics of it and uh, how much you think things like poverty, unemployment, financial difficulty plays into sort of the far-right pipeline mm. um, and if that's changed because of the rise of social media since the times when you were radicalised. Okay. And do you want to ask the next two questions and then we'll, we'll answer all three together? Um, earlier you were mentioning how at the beginning there were moments um, when... There were moments where you realized that what you were doing was wrong. So I was wondering if it was a breaking point for you or if it was more of a process of change where you decided to step away from your anti-Semitic views. Thank you. Okay, thank you. My question sort of links to the previous one. I'd say it's um say it's more similar <laughs> to um what kept you going? We we saw how you discussed about how people fuel their hatred and that keeps their anti-Semitic views, but what was it that catalyzed you in keeping your progression going? What made you reform and prevented your relapse back into those old, like, not progressive ways? Thank you. Awesome. Um, well, to start yeah. with the, the economic uh, issues, I, I think when there are economic hardships in society, it's certainly something that extremists of all sorts can prey upon. Um, it, when you have an ideology that basically revolves around blame and everything's going great, like there's really no one to blame, so it's like you need some things to be broke down and things to be wrong with society. And now we're, oh my God! I mean, the inflation, the pandemic, climate change, there's all sorts of issues, all sorts of fingers to point. So that's certainly a factor that makes it more dangerous. As far as like um, capitalizing on on uh, extremist ideologies, in my day we were 
broke as hell. <laughs> we didn't make a dime. Our, our, our extremism basically kept us in menial minimum wage jobs that we lose all the time. So like my day, we never cashed in on it. But nowadays, because of the nature of social media, because of the nature of clickbait, it is much more feasible for people to capitalize on extremist ideas. So that definitely happens. Um, the second question uh, about that I knew what I was doing was wrong. Um, and, and then... It wasn't a breaking point because it happened like right away. And it was something that went on throughout my seven year involvement in it. But it was a, a point of exhaustion that built up and built up and built up. And by the end it was a huge factor in me leaving for sure. Um, and then I'll, I'll just get the last one and then you can answer yep. this as well. Uh, so the last question was, uh, what were factors that kept us progressing in, at, once we left? For me, going to rave parties. <laughs> I, I'm a man of extremes. I went from being a violent racist to being a peace, love, unity, and respect raver within the span of about 18 months. Um, I about a year and a half out from attacking people because of the color of their skin. I was on the south side of Chicago at four in the morning on Sunday, shaking my ass to house music with 3,000 people of every possible ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, social economic background, and loving every minute of it. And, and that, that counterculture, in all seriousness, was a place where I found forgiveness and acceptance and, and literally like a, a demonstration that human beings can have a spiritual love for each other and, and a proof of concept of that that um, it, it exists to this day. I, I quit going to parties early in 2001. I, last time I went out techno raving in Germany, I ended up with a concussion. Um, I'm getting too, <laughs> getting too old for it, but I still love the music. And um, I, I think that that's an important factor. Like you've got to find something to take the place of where the movement was. It's a big hole in your life once you take that step out. Nowadays, at Parents for Peace, and we, I don't direct people to rave parties, believe it or not. I don't discourage <laughs> it. Um, but I, what we try to do is introduce uh, service. So serving your fellow human beings, whether it's serving like a homeless population, a women's shelter, uh, find some kind of cause that they're passionate about where they can really do something uh, to make the world a better place and, and kind of fulfill that, fill that gap that way. Um, that's a really powerful means of preventing relapse. And, and as far as relapse goes, it's not necessarily going to look like hate again, but it might look like violence. So um, you, it is certainly a factor that, that people need to be aware of. Okay, I'm an old man, so I've got question one. <laughs> question two or three may have blurred, so you'll have to remind me in a minute. Um, it, when, it, when things are bad, extremism grows. So economics, unemployment, housing, okay, that's when extremism on the far left and the far right grow because you've got people to blame. And, you know, you don't want to think it's your fault. And if society's having issues, then, you know, if you've got to feed your kids or you're living in a house with a mouldy window, if somebody says, well, if we were in power, we're going to build five million homes, then that's an easy win. That gets across on a, on a sort of a ballot paper. So when it, when it's bad, extremism will just grow and it will develop. So society's got to get our butts off, you know, the floor and do something together because you know we can't let the extreme use you know societal factors to divide us. Um, with regard to sort of 
What was the question two? I'm going to be doing it. I'm old. So what was question two? Sorry. Was there a breaking point or was it a gradual process of leaving? Thank you. I'm glad you're here, Dave. <laughs> so um, basically, sort of my breaking point for me was two things, really. Like, it took me a three-year process. First one was my wife gave me an ultimatum at the time. She was apolitical, always thought she'd change me. I lied through my teeth. Every time she went, I don't want you to do this again. I'd go to really like being, you know, creating a newsletter, something safe, no demos, no fights. And then all of a sudden, three months later, I'd be back. But when she gave me the ultimatum, Combat 18 or her, and then I chose C18 at the time, for the first six months, you know, I'm, I'm a big tough man, you know, Nazi, I don't care, complete lies. That then sort of makes you think, you know, is that the reality of what you've just lost? But for me, it was the absolute violence, you know, I have to be the honest, the, the violence I witnessed, the violence I took part in, you know, when I, I come out of a meeting and I saw a black gentleman getting racially abused, but then saw his sort of, his children and his wife crying in a bus stop, and there's 15 C18 lads absolutely gonna obliterate his family, starting with the gents. I literally decided, do I walk off because I'm not gonna be involved in this, or do I really stupid and jump in the middle to stop it? Now, I did that, and I did that because I felt I was a leader and they wouldn't attack me because there'd be repercussions. But at that moment, you know, getting the, the guy into safety and getting him into a black card and getting him out of there, I just saw absolute, you know, what type of these people I'm hanging around with. And then I just thought, I do not want to do this anymore. But then there was a process then of leaving and, and coming to sunny London when it does go sunny. Um, and just literally working my way through different food menus in Soho. So anything that was there, whereas you went to music, I went to food. I not, food not bad too, shoes. Uh, and I just worked my way around it, but that then reinforced it. With regard to why do we carry on, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, no, I would wish I never had to do another public interview and I could just help people you know what I mean, come out of that journey, but there's not enough voices. So until we get more voices, you're still gonna have to put with, up with Arnie's accent and my Brummie accent <laughs> to get that message over. Because, you know, all of us have got to take a responsibility. You know, we can't just turn away and go, oh, extremists. You've got to think about the individual, put the label away, you know, Nazi, racist, whatever. Because if we walk away from those people, they're gonna go back to the far right, so we've gotta sit down and have difficult conversations. You know, I've done my DNA, I'm part Jewish, I've got, you know, friends from every race, nationality, sexuality. No, it doesn't really bother me, absolutely not, not any, you know, I've got no issues with it, and actually I enjoy the benefits now, which is great, but if we don't keep carrying on, getting up every morning and thinking, what can we do today, you know what I mean, and increasing the numbers, we've got to increase the numbers, because otherwise you're going to say, oh no, actually he's going to end up with hair like me, i.e. <laughs> none. Because the, the work that you put in, 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day, it's not sustainable. So we need people to go, I'm going to do something today. I'm going to share a social media post. I'm going to do something. And everybody in this room can understand that when you walk out of here, talk to one person. You talk to one person, you're actually taking away the reasons for people being involved in extremism. And that's all you've got to do. And then sort of learn education is absolute key. The more you learn about extremism and the, the reality of how barbaric involvement is on the individual, their families and the communities that they live in, we're going to reduce it. We'll never get rid of all extremism. 
but we can reduce it. But it's about you guys and ladies going out there today and tomorrow and next week and doing something. I think that's a really powerful point on which to end. And I understand why you both say you wish you didn't have to do this, but I'm sure everybody in this room really appreciates the fact that you both do. Uh, so I think the last thing to do is to thank both of our speakers tonight. Arno and Mike. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This episode is recorded by Aaron Milliken, recorded and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown, and produced by Shoutout UK. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed.